Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Do you have a warrant for your arrest for the murder of William Lowe, who was the gas station attendant? But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 7, Episode 9. And in this episode, we we started to cover some of Jamie's timeline. And most importantly, what I wanted to know is, did Jamie Snow have an alibi for the night Bill Little was murdered? And if so, is it verifiable? Uh, Still, so far, looking through the files, I haven't seen any actual evidence that Jamie committed this murder uh, but he was convicted, and we know there was a lot of testimony against him, but it just feels like there had to be something else. So we heard from uh, the, the grand jury testimony from Jamie's wife, who says that Jamie was home, and we also saw that fall apart when the photos that she was describing to the grand jury turned out to be maybe from the year before. So I know you guys got a lot of questions, and Zach, you had something you want to say before we get started? Yeah, I'm going to commandeer this for just a second. So as we're recording, it's September 11th. Now, I know the listeners will hear this a couple days later, but I'm sitting across the table from two former firefighters. So I'm just telling everybody this, regardless of your political status, regardless of your any conspiracy theories, tonight, go home, hug your loved ones, make sure you tell them you love them, embrace your friends, and just be kind to everybody. That's all we need to do. It doesn't just need to be today, but today's a good starting point. Yeah, thanks for that, Zach. And yeah, it was a. Uh, it's rough in the morning this time every year when you turn on the news and you see all the memorials going on. I was actually a firefighter on 9/11, and I I remember it very very well. I remember the sounds of what most of the world didn't know what what they were hearing, but anybody that was in the fire service knew was the sound of personal alarm systems that are installed on the air packs of the firefighters uh, when you stop moving, and they were just beeping and beeping. So I'm, I'm glad. I, th- I think we we need to always take time to remember that. And and like you said, there's a lot of political stuff that go, that comes along with it. I don't want to get into any of that. I just it was a time in our country where we really came together. And uh, I hope someday we can get to a point where our country can be a little less divided. Absolutely. All right. Thanks for that, guys. Let's go ahead and get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Mike, before you get going with the listener questions, I did want to make one quick announcement. I haven't mentioned this on the show yet, uh, but it's coming up quick. Saturday, October 5th in Baltimore, Anand Syed's best friend, Krista Remmers, and uh, his other best friend, Saad Chowdhury, have put together a uh, an event to raise money for Anand's legal trust fund. So that is Saturday, October 5th. It's going to be from 10.30 a.m. until 3.30 p.m. Uh, there's going to be some light refreshments and a Pakistani lunch. 100% of the proceeds go to Anand's legal trust. And there's going to be several panels and guest speakers. You're going to hear from Rabia, Saad, Krista, Susan, and more. And I was hoping to go. Uh, I actually was planning to go until I saw the date. And I have another obligation on October 5th. So unfortunately, I cannot make the trip. Uh, but for any of you that can make it, please go check that out. Uh, there'll be a link on our Facebook page as well as the fan page. I'll put it on all forms of social media to buy tickets. Tickets are 100 bucks. This is going to be something similar to the gala that we had a few years back that raised a lot of money for Adnan, and it was, it was a great experience. So I re- encourage all of you, anybody that's available that can be in Baltimore on October 5th to go check it out. And also, if you can't make it, you can you can be a supporter in spirit on the same website. You can go and you can just make a donation to the legal trust. So please do that. As you guys know, and not say it has a, has a big fight still yet ahead of him after his overturned conviction was reinstated. And uh, Justin Brown, who is also going to be one of the guest speakers, has a lot of work ahead of him. And, and that work is going to be costly. So let's do whatever we can do to help support Adnan. And with that, Mike, we can go ahead with these questions. All right. Our first questions come from Lisa. She writes, when did the run-in between Jamie and Danny Hartley occur? And if we know that, can we determine why Danny was going after Jamie? My understanding is, and we actually met, Mike and I met in person, Danny Hartley, yesterday. Right, yeah. And so if we sound a little slow today, it's because we we made an impromptu trip to Bloomington yesterday. We had several witnesses to talk to. Danny Hartley was one of them, and, and we we got home at, at 2.30 in the morning yesterday, and then we're back up working again. Long day. Yeah, it was a long day. But um, Danny mentioned that again, uh, the, the confrontation he had. It sounds to me, he didn't give us a date, but it sounded like he said it was after he got back from Florida, which would have been 93. So, And that was about the time when I think the, the rumors were really getting going about Jamie at that point. Once he had left and gone to Florida and got back, and some people started talking. And that's when, you know, Danny said he, you know, he thought Jamie Snow did it for no other reason than people told him that Jamie Snow did it. So, uh, but that, that's when that was. It was about two, two years after the fact in 93, I believe, when Jamie came back from Florida. All right. Mary has two questions. Did Jamie's ex ever go back and look through pictures again to verify if there were pictures from the correct year or if it already was the correct year? The baby was a one year old. Did these pictures get to the attorney to show the baby's age? So Tammy returned back to the grand jury in the in the the testimonies posted on our website, but she did come back. I think it was the next day they asked her to come back and bring photos, and and she couldn't find photos that she was looking for. I mean, she she couldn't find photos of that year at Easter with Jamie Jr. as as it would would it would have been a one year old with Jamie in the picture. And I mentioned at the beginning the episode that grand juries are it's a tough thing for any defendant or any defense witness because there's no defense there. There's no lawyer. So in this scenario, and and I met Tammy Snow yesterday, and you're gonna be hearing from her very soon. Uh, and you're gonna be you're gonna be pretty shocked to hear what she has to say. But in a normal trial, and in, in times when I've you know I've testified as an expert witness in the fire service, I've testified, I've been divorced frankly and had custody battles. I've I've spent time on witness stands uh quite a bit. 
And what happens in a normal trial setting is all prosecutors or defense attorneys, any lawyer is going to get you on the stand and they're going to try to twist your words. They're going to try to get you to commit to something. They're going to try to turn it around on you to attack your credibility. But in a normal trial, what would happen? So in that scenario, the prosecutors made her look like she had no credibility. Uh, and, and the fact of the matter is she's just up there just trying to tell the truth yeah. and trying to remember the best she can. In a normal trial setting, then once they sat down, the defense attorney would come back and cross-examine her and do some damage control and correct that and correct course. You know, they'd ask questions like, okay, so you have this picture, this picture. Like if I was an attorney, I would ask, okay, answer me this. Was there an Easter that you can remember when Jamie Jr. was little where Jamie wasn't there? Mm-hmm. You know, the, questions like that. You can do things, that, but in a in a grand jury, there's no opportunity to correct that course. It's only the prosecution. And they get to spin things pretty much however they want to. Yeah. And you got to think, too, that she's being questioned eight years later and mm-hmm. you're answering questions on the spot. So you have no time to think about this. Right. Well, she, she they talked to her. The police were talking to her in the weeks prior to. OK. Which is why she was digging into pictures and things and trying yeah. to remember. But she just never got you don't get a chance to explain things on the witness stand if you don't have your own attorney coming back up and. And asking you the right questions to let you, like I said, kind of correct course. Yeah. Um, And so that's what we went to Bloomington to do. Next, she says, and everybody wants to know about the cast. Did anyone follow up on Jamie's statement about having a cast on? And how could witnesses not see that, but see a scar on the killer's chin? So in our conversation, I I don't think I included it all in the podcast, but Jamie did explain a little bit about the cast. My, and I, I haven't seen the trial transcript of it yet, uh, but I asked, was it brought up at trial or did it help you all at trial to be able to show any doctor's records to show that you were in a cast at that time? Because that's a pretty noticeable thing. And unfortunately for Jamie, there's not. So he said he he did go to the doctor five days before the murder. So apparently they had, it sounds like they had medical records for five days before the murder. He went for a checkup and he was in a cast, but he never went back to the doctor. Uh, they were Jamie wasn't working at the time because of the injury to his hand, uh, and I'm not sure what exactly what caused the injury, but I know he, he couldn't work because of the injury to the hand. Mm-hmm. They were struggling financially, and so when it got to the time when the cast was supposed to come off, Jamie actually took the cast off himself. Wow! But that could be any. I mean, it could be a hard cast, could be a soft cast. Right? Sounds yeah. like it was a hard cast. Okay. And he and he took it off himself. And do we know if it was left or right hand? I don't know if it was left or right hand. And also. Wouldn't a cast on the hand be a lot smaller than uh, like a broken arm cast would be? Yeah, it could be. But I mean, it would be, I mean, it would be a pretty big clunky thing on your hand. I mean, I think if you're noticing that they look like they've got something tucked under their jacket from across the way, you know, and, and more so even Gutierrez. Gutierrez that he saw the guy in there light a cigarette. Mm-hmm. That takes two hands. Mm-hmm. So and, and he's the one that noticed the scar on the chin and the the earring. So I, I don't think that if the person was wearing a cast, he would have noticed that. Mm-hmm, right. um, and on that line, I don't want to derail us too much, but I was reading through some more statements by Gutierrez, some later statements that we're going to get into later. But one thing I wanted to point out, we talked last week about maybe it was a language thing, the difference between a scar and a fresh cut because they ruled everybody out because of a scar. And uh, one of the reports I just read yesterday morning said that when they were asking Gutierrez about it, whether it was fresh or where, whether it was like an older cut, and he said it was fresh, he went in more detail in this report, and he says, I think it was fresh because you could still see the spots on the side of it from stitches. 
that is that then becomes very specific to me as opposed to somebody just maybe has a little cut on their chin mm-hmm. that goes away. This was a medical thing. There was so he sees a slice. And if any of you have seen scars where you have stitches and you got those dots where the stitch holes were, uh, that that's a significant injury mm-hmm. as opposed to just a, a cut on a chin. So just to play devil's advocate with the cast being seen, you do have to realize, too, it's early in the year. It's chilly. We've already identified that right. they say that he was wearing a jacket. Leather jacket, right. You know, we're saying that Gutierrez saw him light a cigarette. But do we really know? We don't really know if he lit a cigarette. So he could have his hand in his pocket, hand in his coat pocket. Even if he is holding the revolver with that hand in the coat pocket, right. you're not going to notice it. That's just playing devil's advocate here. Right. Well, but in in that regard, I mean, you can throw anything out, right? You can say he never saw anybody or he never, yeah. you know. We're, all we have to go off of is what he said, mm-hmm. which is, you know, he described the guy where he was standing, what he was wearing, uh, what Bill's nervousness. The guy at one point lit a cigarette out of his pocket. But unfortunately for Jamie, his uh, their financial situation and Jamie being Jamie, they don't have records. You know, if, if Jamie had went back a few weeks later to the doctor and got his cast removed, that would be pretty solid. That's something that the defense really could have used at trial to say we have proof he had a cast on his arm at trial. My guess is they didn't even use it at trial at all because now because Jamie did take it off himself whenever he took it off himself, I if I was a prosecutor, I'd jump all over that. So as an attorney, you can definitely make a reasonable doubt out of that cast. Right. And you can and you can decide you can really spin it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can if they come up and say, well, he was in a look at this, he had these medical records. He had a cast on his arm. He couldn't have done it. And then the and then the prosecutor comes up to cross-examine and says, well, when was the cast removed? Why don't we have records of it being removed? Oh, you took it off yourself? Why did you take it off yourself then? Mm-hmm. Instead of going to the doctor, were you trying to alter your appearance after the fact? Were you trying to, you know, be, did you take it off just for the purpose of being able to commit this crime? There's just a lot of ways that could have got spun yeah. against him. But the fact of the matter is, there's no medical. We have a, apparently there's medical records of when it got put on, but not when it got taken off. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere where with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus karen wants to know the ages of jamie's children at the time of the murder oh geez i'd have to go to my notes to have all of them i know nicole his youngest the one we heard from on the podcast wasn't born yet jamie jr is the second youngest and at the time of the murder he was a year old uh, and there was two others. Honestly, I don't know. I think they were around like six and nine years old, somewhere around there. Uh, but I, I can't be positive. All I know is that Jamie Jr. was the youngest at the time, and then they saw one more coming after that. All right, Daniel has a few questions here. He says, thinking through the concept of using a firearm in a confined space, it would seem that it would be physiologically challenging to fire a second accurate round at the victim. 
Can we establish if Jamie ever had access to a gun similar to the murder weapon and whether Jamie ever had a means or method to practice with such a firearm? Well, I'll answer the second part and I'll let Zach answer the first. Um, as far as Jamie having access to a weapon, he didn't have, the, in, in Illinois at the time, you had to have an ID, ID card to purchase a gun. He didn't have one, didn't own a gun, and didn't have access to one as, as far as we're aware of. Now, I, I did find out yesterday that in one of uh, a, a burglary he did in the 80s, the one that he went to jail for, the one he said that he spent three years in prison for, guns were something they stole in that burglary. Uh, but there's no information, even accusation, that he committed any other burglaries after that, other than you know being in the car during the Freedom Oil one. So as far as we know, Jamie didn't have access to a gun. That doesn't mean that he didn't, though. You, know, you never know if somebody can get a gun in a lot of different ways. Regarding close quarters uh, and and making the two accurate shots, uh, what do you think about that, Zach? You know, my opinion is, first of all, I don't believe that they're accurate shots. No, I don't uh, either. If, if you look at the autopsy results, what we're presuming is the first shot, even though it's listed as the second shot, is, I, th- I think, an inch off the sternum and, and pretty low. You know, right. it, it's probably another two inches under your nipple line, mm-hmm. an inch off the sternum. Meaning that that person's probably not aiming for the heart per se. Because if a, a normal person's going to aim for the heart, you're aiming above nipple line, off center, which is where people presume the heart is. Right. And it's like, I, I agree with Jim Clementi, and it was my assessment as well, that even though those two rounds crisscrossed the heart perfectly, they weren't, it's luck. Yeah. I mean, it, no, nobody would have shot him in those two places unless they were really, really, really well trained and know that it was going to hit the heart. So, and then we have the the close quarters. That that's actually makes it easier. So we're assuming that the shooter is at a greater distance than two foot because there's no there's no soot. Right. There's nothing like that. But honestly, a target a per, a person sized target will say, even within fifteen feet, is is very easy to hit just by pointing at it. You don't have to aim. Right. You know, it's it's called point shooting in what we do. But you literally just point the firearm at at the middle of the target and pull the trigger. You're going to hit it. Any person can do that. Right. Doesn't matter what kind of training you have, and a second shot isn't isn't going to affect that. You're still shooting the same size area at the same distance. Right. Well, and in, in the layout of that gas station, I mean, we know from the forensics he had to be at least. Jim said I've talked to him again since, and Jim says that they would their rule of thumb that there was no stippling or soot on the clothing or the person that they would say at least three feet. Okay. Uh, the ME said at least two feet as a rule of thumb. So at least that far away. Well, there's only two feet of space behind the counter, the maybe 20 inch counter, mm-hmm. and then about two foot of space, three foot maybe on the other side of the counter. Yeah. We can assume that if he has to be three feet away and his arms extended to fire the gun, that the guy's probably three and a half, four feet away. Yeah. He's not very far away. Where the muzzle of the gun is when he, sh- when he shoots. Yeah. The thing to me is the, the dynamics of that sec, what I think is the second shot, the one mm-hmm. that went in near the clavicle by the, by the collarbone and ended up crossing through the heart. But I, I just don't know how quickly the shots came. You yeah. know, was it like boom and he's falling and boom and he hits him again? Or was there, was there a time gap between there? Yeah. And I wish we could talk to Danny Martinez. I wish he would kind of come out of hiding and explain because those are the, the, the police only asked him and the def- prosecution only talked to him as a witness. And that's any witness in this case. With the intention of trying to convict Jamie Snow, they were never actually trying to get information out of him. Yeah. We need information to come out of him. So if you are a, just as a listener at home, if you extend your hand in front of you and point at any object, you know, within 
five feet of you, you're going to be directly on that object. It's no problem to point at that object. Right. That is the same thing you're doing at a close distance shooting. Whether it's the first shot or the second shot. Whether it's the first shot or the second shot. It is, and especially something that you're assuming, it's a grown man. I mean, he's 18 years old, but it's a grown man. Right. You have a, a decent size he's six object. Foot two. He's a big kid. Yeah. You have a decent size object to point at. Like, uh-huh. I don't think that the close proximity is an issue with that, trying to, to have two accurate shots. And again, my belief not being that they're accurate at all. Right. Lucky shots. And, you know, we, I, we were, we were looking into the ballistics a little bit more before we recorded today. Um, I was looking at some of the ballistic reports and we do know. There was more ballistic work done on the bullets by both Bloomington PD and the uh, the Illinois State Police, and it does look like they determined that it was a revolver. So they were able to, I guess, by the striation patterns, discover a couple of things. One was the bullet had been modified, which that's interesting, too. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It didn't get into detail exactly how. It's, it was modified, and uh, the police officer that, that sent me the report said it looks like you know modifying the bullet to try to make it operate as a hollow point which is a more destructive round yeah the only thing i can think of zach you probably know better is i know a lot of times in on hunting rounds people will take and take a knife and the lead in the Mm -hmm. front of the round and they'll like just like scribe a a cross into it and that causes the the bullet to actually open up and fragment more yeah that's exactly and in those like a 22 typically the projectile is is soft lead they're not jacketed like a nine millimeter or anything like that has that has the jacket the copper jacket Mm -hmm. So you're you're really able to manipulate that soft lead a lot easier. Right. Like you said, by taking a knife, you can make that X. It does help. You can even carve it out a little bit to give it that pocket. Right. And by that pocket opening is is it forces that projectile to expand. Right. Which, in my opinion, if someone is doing that, you have a different level of sophistication. This isn't somebody that just happened into this. Well, and to me, if you're doing that, that means that you're intending to fucking shoot somebody. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, if if you are going into this robbery with the intention of using your firearm as a threatening device to get what you wanted out of the drawer you don't give a crap what the bullet looks like mm-hmm. you know you don't you don't care what kind of destruction is going to come from that round when it hits someone because you're not planning on shooting anyone yeah. but when you take the time to carve out the round to make it more destructive to me that means just like Jim Clementi said and I agree that this was not a robbery gone wrong they went in there with the intention of shooting bill yeah I mean, how many times do you see a robbery where they go in with a pellet gun or a BB gun? Right. Because it's strictly for the intimidation factor. That's all it is, just for a threat. So this person took that extra time to make this a deadly, a more deadly round. Round. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other things we learned about the the ballistics were in the striation patterns and in the study of it, or the analysis of it, it appears that they, they did determine that it, there was there was a list of, we don't have the list. Um, or I don't have the list. I haven't that I've I haven't looked through that actual report. That they had a list of potential guns that could it could have been. They were all revolvers, so there was a revolver, uh, and they were all none of them were well known brands. They were all foreign brands of of guns, and they were kind of kind of rare. Uh, and then I, I haven't seen that they went any further to try to track any of those down. I wonder if that includes like antique guns. It may. You know, I, to be honest with you, I shouldn't I shouldn't expand too much for, further on this because I'm I'm relaying what uh, what Ray Wilson relayed to me, who Ray Wilson again, the investigator, former police chief that analyzed the reports and relayed to me. I need to read the actual to find the actual reports and see because they may have listed out the gun types and Ray just summarized it to me. So I, sh- I, I, I will get back to that again on next week. We'll talk more about it. 
But what, what according, according to Ray, what they said in the reports is that uh, it sounds like it was a revolver and it was a, a the list of guns were, were all foreign and, and lesser known guns. He's, I think his his comment was, you know, nothing better than a like a 38 special okay. cheap guns. And by foreign, yeah. I don't think we're talking about some very fancy foreign guns. You know, the great guns are made here for the mm-hmm. most part in know. Italy. And that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so you're t- what you're talking about is very cheap. They weren't buying a Smith and Wesson yeah. or, or a Ruger or something like that. They're buying a cheap gun. There's a lot of knockoff. I don't say knockoffs, but there's a lot of knockoffs that come over from like Turkey. Mm-hmm. That That's probably a, a good likelihood of something like that. Right. Last CS, did anyone do a deep dive through Jamie's financials as well as the financials of Bill Little and Bill Little's closest friends and known associates to see if any type of larger transactions popped? This is a life experience perception thing. So this is the thing. I don't know how to put it very nicely, but I don't know that anybody involved in this case had a bank account. Okay, so so we're we're talking about people that were I'll take Jamie Snow, for example. They're putting golf tees together for seven cents a piece in their trailer to be able to pay the rent. There isn't some big in-depth financial search. I mean, it sounds to me from what I've spoken to the people from that area or that time that knew these people, like these, most of them didn't even have bank accounts. So there was no, there were really no financials to dig into. You know, Tammy Snow, I believe was the one that testified that they didn't have a phone. They had to walk down the road to her mom's house to, talk to him because they didn't have a phone. Karen says, was there a new improved polygraph test using the correct date given to Jamie? As far as I know, there wasn't. And you heard in that interview, you know, you, when Jamie was getting pissed and he was talking to the police, you know, one thing he knows he's, he's saying, he's like, give me another one. Give me a thousand. I'll pass every damn one of them. I and mean, he, he was begging for another one. Still to this day, he's begging for another one. And uh, in conversations with me, as far as I know, though, they never did give him another one. I, I don't believe Yesterday's trip was very enlightening, and I don't believe that the Bloomington PD, now I'm not talking about the original investigators, but the 99 investigators, uh, specifically Katz, I don't think that they were ever, once they picked up this case, looking for the truth. They were looking for information. They were looking to convict Jamie Snow, and that's all they cared about. You know, I've I've tried very hard to stay very objective and, and play devil's advocate several times in this, but I have a very hard time with the 94 question. Like, I just don't feel like if you're questioning me and you say the wrong date, I'm, you're already thinking about what's occurring. You're not thinking about the actual date that they just said. Right. And to be able to snap to that and be like, oh, they said the wrong date. Nope, I was free. That would show up on a polygraph, I would think. Yeah, you would think because that's, that's, that's too quickly done, in yeah. my opinion. I, I do too. And you even heard in the, if you listen closely in his interview when they said it to him, Jamie missed it when they explained it to him then. Yeah. You know, they're like in 1994, da-da-da-da-da. And and you hear him like, yeah, no. and they're like, well, here's the problem. It didn't happen in 94. Yeah. It happened in 91. And you can you can almost hear Jamie like, what? Oh. Yeah. I think he says, oh, like he didn't notice that. Yeah. You know what you're being questioned for. So you're thinking about right. that event. So you're not paying attention to that date, that one date being wrong. And, and also, so then the other question, one of the other relevant questions were, did you shoot Bill Little? No. No deception indicated. Truthful. And again. You know, polygraphs are what polygraphs are. You can believe in them that they're useful or not. I think they are sometimes and they're not in others, and that's why they're inadmissible, and they should be. But they're listed in a way, you know, and Katz is presenting it in a way as though those those questions were asked bang, bang, right? Mm-hmm. In 1994, did you do this? Did you shoot Bill Little? That's not how they work. The, those questions, they mix in 
That, that's why it always says relevant questions mm-hmm. because they mix in control questions throughout. And he'll never ask two relevant questions back to back. They're always mixing. So it'll be, what's your name? Jamie Snow. Or is your name Jamie Snow? Yes. Did you live in Bloomington, Illinois? Yes. Did you shoot Bill Little? No. Did you do this? You, you know, they're yeah. mixed up. So it's not like they were blended together. And the fact that he throws away, did you shoot Bill Little? No. Throws that away because in another question, they said, did you, did you rob the Clark station in 1994? Is just ridiculous, in my opinion. There's no, that, that was just, they're just trying to fit a round peg into a square hole. So maybe this is jumping ahead too far, but do we know why Crow led away from him and why Katz came back to him? Crow led away from him because there was no evidence. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he, he liked him for it. He wanted the polygraph. Crow's the one that put him in a couple lineups where he was not identified, by the way. Including with Danny Martinez, if I'm not mistaken. So, so he, and the only reason I think Crow was doing that was because there was, he just kept hearing from people that Jamie Snow was involved. Yeah. Jamie's in laws told police that he was home that night. His wife said he was home that night. There's no actual evidence that he did it. He passed a polygraph. And so, what, what was he going to pursue? And then, that, and I think that's what Jamie means when he says, yeah. and again, it's, it's, we got yeah, we're late in the game. We did all these interviews. You're gonna hear some some pretty incredible stuff this week. And then next week, I promise you, we're going to knock your socks off when you find out what exactly was going on in this investigation. We've got to really you know sort it out and and vet some things and then and then we'll put that episode out. But Crow was on it. He was doing his job and he was doing a little bit of manipulating as police do when they're trying to solve a crime. And when he realized there's nothing on Jamie, he said, Well, okay, well. I can't, even if he still believed in his heart, Jamie was guilty, he knows he can't prove it. Yeah, there's nothing there to go off of. But once Katz took it over as a cold case in 1999 or 98, whenever it was, he actually took the case over. It seems that at that point he decided, well, if there is no evidence, then I'll make some. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. All right, Christy says, It was infuriating how they tried to use the lie detector to trip Jamie up. How is it a thing that police are able to lie to you during questioning? Is this something that can be changed? I mean, it's a Supreme Court ruling. That says that they can lie to you during an interrogation, and I don't think it'll be changed. And and here's here's the tricky thing: I don't think it should be changed. We cover wrongful conviction cases, but there are interrogation tactics I that, that you use. I I was gonna say I use them with my kids. Um, I did just a couple weekends ago when they got in trouble. You know, where you just you know I'll lead them to believe I know something that I don't actually know. To read their response and and try to and and they sang like birds. My two kids. As soon as I told them that uh, I already know this happened and and in you know I'll use ta- and I did you know I was trained as an an interviewer 
an interrogator as a, as an arson investigator as well. So, you know, I've used these skills for a long time, but um, for me, I'm trying to think if I ever lied and I don't think I did, but what I would do is maybe imply things. And you ask a why question instead of a did question. Mm -hmm. So instead of like, did you go into the house? You say things like, why would your fingerprints be in the house? You know, I didn't say your fingerprints are in the house. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of times you'll say, why are your fingerprints in the house? And they'll respond. They'll, they'll try to make up an excuse. Well, because I was in there here, here, here. It's like now they put themselves in. So when you have an actual guilty person in front of you and you're trying to get to the truth, it's a, it's a long game, right? You're just trying to, you're just trying to get little steps, get them closer to the truth is the way. And that's the way the read technique's supposed to work. If it's done properly, it, you know, you're going, okay, now they put themselves in the house. So now I can start working on it. You were in the house. And now you've said you were in the house at this time, so let's talk about that. And I can pull that apart and pull that apart. And I might say, well, then why would a witness from across the street say that say they saw you leaving the parking lot at such and such a time? Like, why would that happen? And I'm reading the response. because, And if they're like, that's bullshit, mm-hmm. like they're lying, then good chance, you know, that they're they're either a really good liar or you got that part wrong, you know, because you, you, you should have already evaluated some evidence. And started to develop hypothesis and the tested it against evidence before you even get to that that situation. I guess what I'm getting at, and it's not a popular opinion amongst the wrongful conviction crowd, which is us. But I don't think that it should be changed. I don't think that I, I don't think that we should handcuff honest detectives in the interview room to try to get answers. You know, and at the same time, I'm also the guy telling you don't talk to him, get a lawyer. So there's that. But it's a unique position to be in for me because I am a big supporter of law enforcement in general, um, you know, honest, good cops. And I know there's there's bad cops out there and there's cops that do some terrible things. And I think they need to be held accountable. That's where I think that there should be a change. I don't, I don't think there should be this immunity for crooked prosecutors. And I don't think there should be immunity for crooked cops. I think that they should be held accountable for their actions. But at the same time, we need to let them be able to do their jobs. But to answer the question, it is legal for police officers to lie to you during their interrogation. That's a Supreme Court ruling, uh, and I don't see that changing probably ever. But at the same time, there was something that I noticed in that interview that I think could be problematic, and I've got to go back and research that. But I was very much under the impression that there was also a Supreme Court ruling that said you can't use the threat of a death penalty to coerce a confession. Hmm. Now, in this case, there was no confession. Because yeah. so, some people asked, too, like, shouldn't this whole thing be thrown out? Because they kept questioning him after they, they, he said he wanted a lawyer. Well, I think the thing with that is if you ask for a lawyer, that means you also have to stop talking. Right. And he, and he kept talking. But even beyond that, it could still be argued. It, it's not a cut and dry. Mm-hmm. Well, he said lawyer, and you kept asking him. Then he said some incriminating shit. So it's thrown out. It's not that cut and dry. Yeah. Because Jamie was still talking. But even if it was, even if it was that cut and dry, the fact that Jamie never said anything incriminating after that, I'm sure they didn't use that interview in the trial. Yeah. Why would they? He didn't say anything. All he said is, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Give me a polygraph. I didn't do it. Yeah. But what, what immediately caught my attention was the state's attorney, Tina Griffin, telling him, well, I'm giving you this opportunity. I'm giving you this opportunity. He says, opportunity for what? And she says, to avoid the death penalty. Yeah. Like, that's what got me. It's like, oh, I don't. And, and, and we have lots and lots of lawyers listening. So somebody correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I tried to do a little bit of research on this the other night, and I, c- I couldn't find a good answer. Mm-hmm. But I think it was uh, Francie, Francie Hakes, with it, who was a co-host of Jim Clemente on one of their podcasts, Best Case, Worst Case. 
who had talked about that. She's a former prosecutor. And Jim was a former prosecutor. And my memory, what I recall is you can't do that. So if, if Jamie had then turned around and be like, okay, fine, I did it. Like if, you know, she basically was telling him in that interview, you can either confess to this or you're going to get the death penalty. But I wonder if there's verbiage there because I do believe in the interview, she doesn't actually threaten him. I, I think she says, because this is a death penalty case. Well, she said it twice. So she said that. And then it was, it was, you know, it's off mic. You can barely hear it. But it's when, when Jamie says, opportunity for what mm-hmm. and she says to avoid the death penalty okay i never caught that part but that's yep. my thought was just verbiage because i know that's a, that goes a long way if the verbiage is correct yeah you can say a lot of things <laughs> yeah and she was dancing around it mm-hmm. she didn't say either you confess or you're going to get put to death but when she says well we're giving you this opportunity you have this one opportunity to tell us what happened opportunity for what opportunity to avoid the death penalty I mean, that's a, that's a threat. It's a veiled threat. And it's a very, it's, it's a despicable, it's a coercive technique. That's how false confessions happen. That's what happened with Jesse Miss Kelly in the West Memphis three case. Mm-hmm. You know, they convinced him they're going to kill him if he doesn't tell them what they want to hear. And he told them what they want to hear, you know, and, and, and I don't, again, I, please, please write in if you're an attorney, if you have any information on that, but. I don't know if it's absolutely cut and dry. You can't do that, but I can tell you, you shouldn't. That yeah. one you should not be doing. If you got to twist a scenario a little bit to try to prompt somebody to tell you the truth, you know, then I, I think that's a useful tactic. But when you threaten someone with, I'm going to kill you if you don't say, and that's essentially, we can call it death penalty, but that's what it is. I'm going to murder you. The state's going to murder you if you don't tell me what I want to hear. That should not absolutely be done. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Sandy says, can you contact Bloomington Radiology to see if they have records for Jamie's broken arm in the early 90s? No. Um, and that's unfortunately, I mean, that's HIPAA laws. They're not going to release that information to me. The only person that they may be able to release that to, if they still have it, it would be Jamie. And they may have it. I mean, depending when they started digitizing records and if there was no floods or fires, I mean, there's a lot of things that can happen in 28 years. But uh, if the records still exist, then that's something Jamie may be able to to get a hold of. But uh, you, none of us can go in and say, I would like another person's medical records. All right. And last, listener Jennifer wants to know why we didn't do a fan meetup when we were in Bloomington. We just didn't have time. Uh, and we will do one for sure. I mean, it's not it's a three hour drive for us. But in this trip, I mean, this was. Um, I know I've kind of hinted at it and, and there's, and you guys are going to be excited to hear it. I'm trying to hear some of it this weekend, but it was, I mean, we got up in the morning, immediately took off and had four interviews lined up and they were bang, 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 and then drove home and got home at two o'clock in the morning. There was just no time and, and we couldn't stay because we had not only to record this this morning and, uh, also in, in, uh, 17 minutes when we stop here, I'm going to be recording with the undisclosed team for the addendum for their, uh, new season, their first addendum, which will air, uh, I believe, yesterday for you guys, Thursday. So if you want to hear me talk about arson investigation, that'll be on the undisclosed feed. So it just, we just didn't, we, in this particular trip, we had to get there and we had to get back. All right. That's going to do it. All right. Thanks, everybody. Make sure you tune in on Sunday to hear from some of the witnesses that we spoke to this week. I'll tell you what this week's episode is about. My intention is in the reason, one of the reasons we went to Bloomington. Is at this point, we have statements from some people that say Jamie was doing X, Y, and Z. And we have Jamie saying, no, I wasn't doing any of those things. So we got boots on the ground, went to Bloomington, and we tracked down what Jamie was actually up to in 1991.
Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our Friday Fall logo was created by Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I want to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Pam Maples, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support the show by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website. Just click on the Case Submissions button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And you can also connect with Mike, at mbussing89. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram, at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. I'm the only one awake, guys, so just so you guys know. We're tired. We were in Bloomington last night. We got back at 2 in the morning. I got back at 2 in the morning. And then Mike drove another half hour home and then showered and then went that night and then was back here in the morning. Yeah. We're tired. It's all right. So if we sound it's stupid. Big picture. It's really okay. Right. I mean, we, we do this every week. Um, Not like this. <laughs> big, no. It's one day out of every day of the year. I think we'll be all right. Real, I'm sad. Ready, Mike? All right, let's get in these questions. <laughs> <laughs> too early. Too soon. Oh, too soon. oh sorry. Sorry. <laughs> mm. Premature. Autopilot. <laughs> oh, whoops. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. 
Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.